We are starting a new sermon series today, and it's going to be on finding God in the storm, because that just seemed like about right. Finding God in the storm. And so our first passage of scripture in the series is going to be from the book of Joel. I don't know if you know the book of Joel, but it's worth reading. But again, you might not actually know the book of Joel. It's a book that's written about what happens when the world falls apart and really what we do when the world falls apart, which is sort of a question that everybody seems to be asking these days, and no one really seems to have an answer, uh, which is even more disconcerting. Joel is an Old Testament prophet, and prophets are tricky people to understand, especially because in TV and movies in our time, you think that a prophet maybe is somebody who always talks about the future or that a prophet is someone who dresses strangely and does weird things uh, or somebody who always speaks in riddles. And that's a pretty bad description of the Old Testament prophets. And don't get me wrong, they still do weird things and they say some really confusing things about stuff that hasn't yet happened. But most of the time, the Old Testament prophets aren't focused on the future. They're focused on the present. They're talking about today. What do we do today? Or what do we stop doing today in light of God's future? The prophets know what time it is. It's actually one of the things you need to know about the prophets. They always really know what time it is and what we need to do in light of that time, especially in light of God's future that's coming. The future is God's. Make no mistake about it. The future belongs to God. It doesn't belong to Donald Trump or to the WHO or to the CEC or Anthony Fauci or Wall Street or the medical establishment or technology or the possibility of new vaccines. The future belongs to the God of the universe. That's a Christian conviction about history. It's what we believe. The, the future is something that is you know, coming but it's something that is coming because God is bringing it into existence and that God is working out his good purposes for us in this season. So what do we do when the world falls apart? Well, turn with me to the book of Joel. We're going to be in chapter one, Joel chapter one. We're going to read a little and then stop and then read a little more. Joel chapter one, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel, Hear this, O elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, over the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, powerful and innumerable, its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and splintered my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down, their branches have turned white. Lament like a virgin dressed in sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The grain offering and drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. The ministers of the Lord, the fields are devastated. The grounds mourn. The grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil fails. 
Be dismayed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, over the wheat and barley. The crops of the field are ruined. The vine withers. The fig droops. Pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up. Surely joy withers away among the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We always say thanks be to God. Always. Because even when the word of the Lord is harsh, it is still aimed at our good, our salvation, our redemption, our restoration. God is slowly and steadily at work in this book and in our lives as we read this book. But Joel's pretty depressing. Let's just be real. And there's a reason you haven't heard a whole lot about it in the church, which is mostly that we don't come to church to be bummed out. And, you know, eight, nine weeks ago, to come to church and hear these words from Joel would feel like a horrible future prophecy, like something just terrible is going to come for us. And that just does, that's not really the kind of thing that we're interested in hearing about on a Sunday. And so that's not the kind of thing that we tend to talk about on Sundays. And there are some churches who avoid the Old Testament altogether, especially words like this, because they want to believe that good things are always going to happen for God's people, that things are never going to be hard, that we're never going to suffer, that things are never going to be bad. I haven't heard a lot from those pastors lately. They don't have much to say because their theology doesn't really allow for a world like this. But Joel has a theology that allows for a world like this. Joel is a pastor and he's not talking about the future. Joel is talking about the present. He's not telling the people of Israel something bad is coming for them. He's talking to the people of Israel about something bad that has already happened. There is currently a national disaster in Joel's time. There is just a catastrophe of epic proportions. Things have fundamentally changed, and it's going to be bad for a while. I know the feeling. I know that we live in unprecedented times. When has anything like this ever happened before? Ask anyone you know, says Joel. Nothing like this has happened before. And you and I live in a similarly unprecedented time. How are we going to get through? What are we going to do? Shelter in place? For how long? Is that really going to work? What, do we not shelter in place? Do we do nothing? Is that going to work? How did Joel get through it? How did Joel's people get through it? Because make no mistake about it, the very existence of the book of Joel is proof that God actually delivered them from this crazy nightmare scenario. I heard a quote this week that kind of blew my mind. Uh, It went like this. We will get through this. We got through World War I. We got through the Spanish flu. We got through the Great Depression. We will get through this. Evelyn Trenberth. You know who that is? Another quote came soon after. We will get through this. We got through World War II. We got through a variety of other wars. We got through polio. We will get through this. Phyllis Ann. You know who that is? We will get through this. My grandmother and my mother, they got through this. 
They got through things worse than this. God will get us through this. Tom Parker, that's my father. My father repeated the wisdom of his mother and his grandmother, which is to say four generations back from me. And I imagine it stretches back farther. See, a big problem for you and me in our time is that we don't know our own story. And our story is really God's story, the story of redemption and deliverance. The story of a God who meets people in the midst of truly disastrous times and saves them and is with them, even when it's dark and it's hard. What are we going to do? How are we going to get through this? What do we do when the world falls apart? We remember our story. We remember our story and we remember some of the things that it teaches us. I learned recently that the mountains of Japan are covered in stones that say tsunami on them. These are called the tsunami stones, which makes sense. They say things like, don't build houses below this rock. They say things like, the village nearby is called flooded village. Terrible tragedy. Up here, it's safe. It says this on rocks all over Japan. Because there was a tsunami, actually an earthquake, and then a tsunami. In the 1800s, it killed 20,000 people. It wiped out all sorts of homes. And the people kept telling their children and their children and their children's children for generations. But eventually people forgot. And then in the 2000s, I don't know if you remember this, there was an earthquake and a tsunami in Japan. And it destroyed a lot of buildings and it killed a lot of people and it flooded a nuclear reactor called Fukushima. But some people remembered and they ran to the high ground. Joel is telling us to remember and to run to the high ground. God can be with us in a truly terrible and disastrous time. And God can get us through a truly terrible and disastrous time. But maybe you're not believing me that Joel is having a really rough season or that the people of Israel are having a really rough season. You heard the word locust. And what is that, like a bug? Like they're, you know, this big. Like how bad could that really be? How disastrous could that really be? You hear the word in verse four over and over again, sort of a verbal swarm. And so I reached out uh, to an entomologist because I thought that would help us. An entomologist is somebody who studies bugs. There's a world-renowned entomologist who goes to the spring in Tempe. He's a Christian. He loves Jesus. And he knows an awful lot about bugs. Uh, So Clint's going to play a really quick video that he sent me because I asked him to uh, just on locusts. Hi, I'm Andrew Johnston, and I'm an entomologist. And when we talk about locusts, we're not talking about a particular species of insect, but rather we're talking about this unique corporate behavioral phase of life that occurs in a number of different grasshopper species. So when the right triggers happen, either high population density, or there's not enough food, or certain nutritional quality to the food that's available, um, these grasshoppers molt into this distinct morphological form that is adapted to move en masse across the landscape. And they travel in swarms that 
can be miles long. In 1875, there was a swarm in the Western U.S. that was the size of the state of California. And these swarms today are still often picked up on radar, and they just eat everything in their path as they move. And even today, they can devastate agricultural communities and economies in Africa and Asia. And researchers around the world are still working to pin down exactly what causes these swarms to initiate. And we're trying to understand ways that regional communities can implement agricultural and social practices to stave off famine and economic decline. So I'm gonna translate that a little bit and remind you of a couple of things he just said. One of the things he just said is that there's no such thing as locusts. Now, I know that sounds strange because the Bible says there's such a thing as locusts, and you've heard the word locust before, and he just said the word locust a bunch of times. There's no such thing as locusts. There are grasshoppers. And then every now and again, for whatever reason, conditions are right, the food's just right, something changes in the grasshoppers. And their behavior changes. They go from being individuals to working as a team. And their bodies literally change. And they become hungrier and more hyperactive and able to fly longer distances and, well, malevolent and bent on our destruction. The only people who aren't afraid of locusts are people who don't understand what locusts are. They can be in swarms of the size of California. California is the third largest state in the United States. It's where almost all of our food is produced. That's larger than the nation of Italy. Imagine a swarm of bugs literally bigger than your whole country. They could land on every square inch of that country and eat literally every living thing, every blade of grass, every leaf, every crop, all of it. And then they could move and fly thousands of miles to do more destruction. Locusts are terrifying. There are international organizations that literally have fighter planes that go out with pesticides to try and stop locusts when they begin to see them through satellites because they could destroy Europe's food population or Africa's food. It's terrifying what they can do. And by the way, it's an economic disaster. So what follows locusts is widespread famine, economic collapse, droughts, fires, mudslides, and by the way, when the locusts die, their bodies stink. In the millions, their bodies stink. And they give off, well, enough of an odor and enough rotting flesh to create things like typhus for human beings. These bugs have been known to chew through doors, blot out the sun. When Joel says what the cutting locust left, the next locust took, and the next locust took, and the next locust took, we have nothing left. Again, he's not talking about the future. He's talking about today. He's saying it is terrible today. Things are awful. The verb you should use for locusts, they are the destroying locusts. Not hopping, not flaying, they're the destroying locusts. So what do we do? Now, you and I, we've got our own plague going on. Little things that somehow have transformed into, well, something that's keeping you at home and keeping me at home and keeping people afraid of the grocery store and causing unemployment in the millions, approaching Great Depression levels. Some of you have lost your jobs. Others of you are wondering if you're going to. We know that it's really bad. Global food supply chains are shaking. 
medicine is having trouble getting to the places it needs to go. Borders are being shut down. People are beginning to starve in other countries because they can't get things that they used to be able to get. And we know this isn't over yet. In fact, it may not even be as bad as it's going to get in Arizona. And we haven't even mentioned that people have died from this disease. Now, again, this is really depressing. It's a really depressing thing to say. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just talk about hope, if we could just sort of put a smile on our faces and say, everything's going to be great. It's going to be fine. I don't know what people are worried about. This is a good situation. God is good. It's going to be great. See, that's a kind of easy believism. I'm saying believism that people sometimes confuse for faith in our country. Faith does not mean that you close your eyes to reality. In fact, it means that your eyes are wide open. And someone whose eyes are wide open in this season will hear Joel say, in a time like this, what you do is you cry. You weep, you wail, you lament. Lament is a key ingredient of hope, a key ingredient of hope. And people think that praying like this is just like a sign that maybe you don't believe in God, or maybe you don't believe that God is good, or that God is up to good things in the future. But again, Joel absolutely believes in the goodness of God's future. He's also just looking at the world the way that it is. You all have probably heard the word denial before. Denial is a really powerful force in people's lives. You can ignore all kinds of pain. And it's something that mature people learn to stop doing. As a person who's become an adult, little by little, when my joints hurt, I go to a doctor now. I used to just laugh it off and ignore it and hope that it went away. And people do that with emotional pain, and they do that with real struggles and suffering in their lives. And as we all know, when you ignore problems, they go away. No, right? They, they get worse. They build like fire. They, they grow like cancer. They tend to destroy until we actually look at them and we start to deal with them. But how do you deal with a plague of locusts? How do you deal with a worldwide economic collapse? Joel says you turn to the God who made the world in the first place. You cry out to him. You weep and you wail and you cry out to him. And it's in saying things like, God, I don't know what you're doing right now, but I don't really trust you. That weirdly, you find a kind of trust. The kind of trust that says, God, I trust you enough with my lack of trust in you. I trust you enough to talk about my really inappropriate and uncomfortable emotions. I trust you enough to to pray with a kind of honesty and vulnerability. I'm not going to pretend anymore. I'm going to tell you what's really going on in me. The first word that Joel says after he talks about the locusts is wake up. Wake up to reality. Start seeing things the way that they are. It's only by doing that and only by crying out to the Lord that we're going to see any kind of change in our lives, even if, again, it's going to be bad for a really long time. Joel will later talk about the years that the locusts have eaten. And it could be that you and I will deal with years that this disease has eaten from our lives. And still what Joel would tell us is to lean into God, to cry out the way the ground cries out in this story, the way wild animals cry out when they don't have enough food. Eugene Peterson, in his introduction to the book of Joel in the message, says, when disaster strikes, understanding of God is at risk. And people who haven't given God a thought in years become instant theologians. God is absent. God is angry. God's playing favorites. I'm not the favorite. Something like this happens. It's okay. I believe in God. I'll be fine. God is holding a grudge from a long time ago. 
and now we're paying for it. It's the task of the prophet to stand up at such moments of catastrophe and clarify who God is and how he acts. If the prophet is good, the disaster becomes a lever for prying people loose from their sins and setting them free from God. There's a sense in which catastrophe doesn't introduce anything new into our lives. It simply exposes the moral or spiritual reality that already exists, but was hidden beneath an overlay of routine, self-preoccupation, business as usual, and then suddenly there it is before us. A moral universe. Joel gives us the opportunity for a deathbed conversion, deathbed repentance, before we die. And Joel, who's looking at the situation and seeing it really dark, doesn't assume that God is angry and vengeful and hates us. Joel says we cry out because we know who God really is. We know his character. And that's where we find our confidence. Uh, In Joel chapter 2, so I'm going to skip you ahead to Joel 2.12. Yet even now, even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relents from punishing. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, Call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the aged, gather the children, even the infants at the breast. Leave the bridegroom and the bride her canopy. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. and Do not make your heritage a mockery, a byword among the nations. Why should it be said among the peoples, where is their God? Joel is confident of who God is. And that's why he thinks that lamenting is worth doing. And you might not actually be sure that there is a God and you might not be sure kind of who God is in this season or if prayer really matters or if it can really deal with issues like this. If crying out to God and just saying, I'm really mad at you is practical. And what Joel would say is, what do you got to lose? Who knows? Who knows what God might do in this time? If we fast, if we pray, if we cry out to him, who knows? what God might do. So why wouldn't you get on your knees and cry out to him? And I know many of you have been doing that. And I know many of you have been fasting actually, which thank you for encouraging me with those things. And if you are still wondering kind of what the word lament means, we've been creating these sort of Psalms Bible studies and they'll kind of lead you through praying in the Psalms and finding lament there. But what he says is it's time for everybody to interrupt their routine. Everybody. Time to stop doing business as usual. Stop pretending like things are okay. And to Turn to the Lord and find a new rhythm and a new routine that's completely centered on him and what he's up to. To constantly look for God's face and not try to numb the pain with Netflix or Hulu or drinking or games or whatever it is that we do sometimes when we just don't want to think about how unpleasant the world is. Little kids, he says, don't get a routine. Old people don't get a routine. Old people love routine. Babies love routine. He's telling nursing infants, you don't get any milk right now, right now. It's time for the babies to cry. And believe me, the babies will cry. When you interrupt the routine and when they don't get a sleep training anymore, the babies will cry out to God constantly. 
and they'll cry out to their parents constantly, that we should be like children saying, God, where are you? God, where are you? God, where are you? And refusing to stop crying out because God listens to prayers like that. Sometimes my kids trip and fall and they cry. And there's a chunk of me that goes like, what's the point of crying? Like, how is that going to help this situation right now? And there's this other chunk of me that's human and sees them crying and goes, oh my gosh, I love you. And wraps them in my arms and just goes, I'm sorry. I know this hurts. They cry because they need to cry. They cry because it hurts. And they know that somehow I'm going to comfort them and I'm going to surround them, even though I can't really do anything about the fact they just scraped their knee. God is like a good father, the scripture tells us. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, gracious and merciful, but unlike me, actually able to do something about the things that hurt us, the things that threaten us. Joel actually says, look, you know who God is and you know what's going to happen. If we suffer like everybody suffers, people are going to say, so where's their God? Like, what about the God of the Christians? He's not going to do anything. See, I told you all this stuff was made up. I told you it was just superstition. That drives God crazy when that happens. Consistently, the argument in the Old Testament is, hey, God, you know people are going to think that you're not real. That's going to be their reaction to this. And they're going to be like, why would anyone believe in God? So if you don't do something miraculous and incredible, no one's going to know that you exist. And I think that bothers you. And it really does. It consistently bothers God that that's the case. Because he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and gracious and merciful. And Joel knows this to be true because he knows the story of the people of Israel. He remembers it, even when things are hard and even when he's crying out. It's one of the reasons he feels like he should cry out. But you and I, we've seen God's character more clearly than Joel ever could have in Jesus Christ. We've seen it on the cross. We've seen it in the resurrection. We literally talked about it last week, that we have a God who loves us so much that he relents. We loves us so much that he chooses to take our suffering onto himself so that we don't have to deal with it. Chooses to set us free in that way. We have a God who loves us enough that he'd go to hell and back for us. A God who loves us so much he became like us and then was beaten for us, killed for us, that we might live a brand new life, that we might be healed of the things that threaten us. And this, the author of Hebrews says, is like a priest who goes into the altar of God and and just constantly says, God, I need you to forgive these people behind me. And that's the image in the book of Joel of this priest between the vestibule and the altar, kind of mediating, standing between God and the people of Israel. That's what Jesus does for us. He mediates for us, stands between God and the people of Israel and cries out for us, spare your people, O God. We see Jesus in the book of Joel. The high priest who comes before God with something better than the blood of animals and goats. He comes with his own blood. He brings his own sacrifice before God. And that's how we know we can trust him in this season because we know who he is and we know how much he loves us. And so bad as it is, and it's bad, and bad as it may get, and it may get really bad. We cry out to God because we know who he is. So what do we do when the world falls apart? Well, we remember God's story for one thing. We remember he's gotten people through things like this before, even if nothing like this has ever happened before. We remember God's story. We cry out to God and we say, stop, change this, help us, save, oh Lord. 
because we know he listens to prayers like that. And we know he listens to prayers like that, partly because of his story, but partly because we know his character. We've seen it in Jesus Christ. A God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's why we believed him in the first place. That's why we've put our lives in his hands. And we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's the posture Joel takes. And I think it's a posture we should take today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you for this book of the Bible. I thank